The Meet for TCAS is brought to you in part by SoneLab, a recording studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Offering recording, mixing, and mastering of all styles of music, we even master podcasts. Email info at sonelab.com for more information. That's info at sonelab.com. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So, this is the Meet for TCAST. You might always start like that. Who knows? I'm Elizabeth McDuffie, founding editor of Meet for Tea, the Valley Review, and this is... I'm Mark Allen Miller, sidekick and uh, co-conspirator in Meet for Tea. Yeah, and I'm um, graphic designer and web guy and um, the host of the Cirques and a whole bunch of stuff. The hats, there are many. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 15 of the Meet for Tea cast. We're recording from our room at the Hilton Homewood Suites, not from under the three elephants, which it seems maybe survived the fire. Yeah, I was in the apartment the other day and the cleaning company had removed everything that they thought they could salvage and I noticed that the elephants had been taken, so I think they're going to save them. Huzzah! In case anybody doesn't uh, know what we're talking about, if you listen to the last episode, we had a house fire. We did. So we are now living out of a hotel for the uh, foreseeable future. It's kind of a little frightening because for the time being, we have we do have insurance money covering our... It's going to run out. Yeah, we have, we have the money covering our hotel, among other things, but that is going to run out. And so if anybody wants to help out, we have a lovely friend, Justine Diamond. How do you spell her? D-Y-M-O-N-D. So if you're on Facebook, you can probably look her up and find that there is, uh, she's trying to raise money for us. We really appreciate everybody who's been raising money for us. Thank you all. That's probably going to come into play in a matter of a few weeks as we still have had no real work done on the uh, apartment where we can actually move back in. You can also Facebook message us at Meet for Tea or at the Meet for Tea cast if you'd just like to be given the link. If you feel like you don't want to hunt for it, we'll yeah. hook you up. Additionally, there is also a donate button on our Meet for Tea cast page here on Anchor. And also on the meetfortea.com website, there is a donate button. So if you're feeling generous, I know everybody's feeling a little broke now in the time of COVID with a lot of people being unemployed and there's a lot of people unemployed. But if you want to help, we're not going to complain. It's also weird how much $20 given by enough people really adds up. You might be thinking, oh, well, geez, all I've got is this measly $20. But you know what? $5 for that matter. It adds up. Yeah, and it, it does make a difference. It really, it really, really does. So there, there, there's that going on. But I think even more crucially what's going on is like, you know, that's that's us. Okay, that's our that's our personal situation right now. And There's a bigger and more awful one to address. And, I, and you all probably know what we're going to say, but it is about this whole situation with police brutality and people of color and we are firmly of the stance that this has to change we want it to change and we're going and to and yeah 
Yeah, it needs Not to. Not just change. Just well, stop. Well, for it to end, it needs to change, but it needs to end. But in the meantime, we need to do things. Everyone impossible can help needs to do things, and so we are, we are trying to do our part. One of the things that I have done to try to help with this is Bandcamp for the past um, couple months and for the next month is doing a thing where they donate all of their funds, all of their cut of the revenue to the artists on a uh, the first Friday of a given month. And that was actually yesterday when they did that. And I released a new single and I decided to donate all of my earnings from that to the Black Voices Collective and to the NAACP. But then I also thought about it and I said, you know, I'm going to extend that for at least a week. So for at least a week, that is until June 11th. One day before your birthday. Hint, hint, guys. That's true. One day before my birthday, hint, hint. Um, And I may extend it further. I may, I I think I might, I might actually just keep it going, but at least until, uh, at least until June 11th, any money that I make from my music at out, out, dot bandcamp dot com uh, I'm donating to those two organizations because it's it uh, while we need the money you know what other people need it too there's there's situations that are happening and I want to encourage people to also pursue following up looking into places where they can donate money to help like for example the ACLU or Southern Poverty Law Center exactly so we're going to also, as Meet for Tea as an organization, we're going to be looking into taking some of the revenues that we might generate and putting that into that. I'm as thinking well. about doing a big PDF sale and just splitting all the proceeds from PDF sales with helpful organizations because, guys, Black Lives Matter. Anyway, let's get down to brass tacks here. What's going on? So tonight we're reprising a June 2015 Cirque, which is called. Cirque de Fleur, and I noticed with some mortification that more recently I repeated the name of that Cirque. Oops. So I need to keep better track. Yeah. Hey, we always want you guys um, to stay involved with this in social media. You can suggest future Cirque names. Oh, hey, that's a good idea. I like that. And if you're a tea head, suggest some good tea themes because, you know, we've got tea themes alternating with meat themes every year for the magazine. I don't mind a suggestion. I don't mind any of your feedback. We'd like to hear from you guys. Although I got to tell you right now, if you're thinking about a meet a meet theme, when Elizabeth and I first started dating, and she needed a meet theme, this one's already been taken. But you know the uh, the, the chicken dish cocovan, Cirque de Coq. Yep, Cirque de Coq. And actually, our local newspaper printed our tagline. The Valley line. Advocate, rock yeah. out with your cock out. They actually printed rock out with your cock well, out. thank you, Tom Storm. I know, that was great. So <laughs> anyway, we're, we're um, playing you content from this June 2015 Cirque because we have all this material. And the first thing you'll hear, I'm actually reading for an author who is remote called Michael Meyerhofer. And then the next thing you'll hear is by an author who's multiply published in Meat for Tea, Richard Horton. We also published his first chapbook, Sticks and Bones, with Meat for Tea Press. And that's Richard Wayne Horton. 
followed by Michael Goldman reading poems he translated out of Danish, both in Danish and English, and it's cool to hear them in the Danish. Then a super funny piece by Jonathan Cause Elwitt, followed by the illustrious Leah Banks, daughter of Russell Banks, by the way. Mm-hmm. And ending the whole stellar lineup of readers is Connolly Ryan. We also had music from a couple bands. Who were they? We did. We had Mystics Anonymous and Claudia Malibu. Remember seeing their poster in the High Fidelity movie? You do, uh, yeah, right? That's right. Claudia Malibu had a, a poster in High Fidelity. How cool is that? In, in, I think maybe even two interior shots. It was at least one interior shot. Yeah. Yeah, really, really it cool. It wasn't obscure. I think I think everybody who lives in the, in the Pioneer Valley, the Western Mass Valley was like, Woohoo! Holy crap, look at that! Yeah, it's really, really awesome. So we're going to start out... I think without further ado, we're going to move right into this. Uh, so this is the, the Cirque from... June 2015. Yes. Cirque de Fleur. And if you're relatively new to this podcast, you should know that one of our goals is to try to bring our live release party shows to you in the best way we can. And so we record them. Because some of you can't get to Me Western too. Mass. I mean, some of you are living far, far away. Although we've had people travel a fair distance to come to some of these, too. We certainly have. So we're going to start off with Elizabeth right here. She's reading Michael Meyerhofer. All right. So I'm going to start off. We seem to be missing a reader. So I'm going to get things going with a piece by Michael Meyerhofer. Let's read part of it. It's called AWP Panel Proposals Gone Wrong. I hope I can see. Number one, napalming bridges, what not to do in response to rejection letters. Two, Olympian restraint, how to avoid poking students in the eye after they say their five-year-old sister could write better than Raymond Carver. Three, you saw my blinker, bitch, incorporating Will Smith lyrics into your pedagogy. Four, Man, you really hurt my feelings, but it's like, whatever. Shrugging off negative or non-existent book reviews. Five, I'm gonna garate you with your iPod cord, curbing extemporaneous technology in the classroom. Six, I'm not homeless, I promise. Male creative writing professors and their facial hair configurations. Seven, dude, I know you're high, what to do with students who are staring at their hands and giggling. Eight, are you gonna finish that? The ethics of softcore plagiarism when you overhear someone say something really cool that you just know they're never gonna put in their own writing anyway. Nine, stickers and cupcakes, how to improve your student evaluations. 10, wrong way down a one-way street how to gently change subjects when a student answers a question by telling long, complex stories about relatives and friends you don't know, beginning with, this reminds me of, followed by, you probably had to be there, and several minutes of additional storytelling. 11, do what I say, not what I do, a guide to surviving typos in your syllabus and lesson plans. 12, caffeine and chainsaws, how to motivate aspiring writers and yourself. 
13, um, security? Fuck, security? Confronting students you haven't seen in months who might actually be crazy people wandering off in the street. And that's enough of the AWP panel proposals gone wrong by Michael Meyerhofer. I invite to take my place, Richard Horton. I just finished um, writing a story uh, called uh, Three Ascensions, set in uh, Bogota, Colombia in 1976. It's uh, 7,200 words, and I'm looking for someone who will read it. I will uh, pay for coffee, pastry, uh, meat. I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say uh, and have a really nice time. Uh, this one is called A Radio in 1963. Half smiling, chewing the last bite of my candy bar, I see myself passing the crate along the conveyor belt as the radio on the wall starts joking around. I reach for the next crate that's struggling toward me along the shot conveyor belt and see the shoulders of the guys getting the boxes out of the truck when the radio starts jackassing around again. It's up on the wall shouting and clearing its throat because that old radio hasn't had a workout in 15 years. But it's going now, boy. Shot. It chokes and then, and then screams. Someone reaches up and slaps it and it calms down. Oh, you bastards, you shot him. Each and every one of you shot him. And someone on the line yells, hey, they, it's, it's about Kennedy. They gave that commie lover his payoff. See if it can pick up the football game. Then a man sits down on one of the crates, puts his elbows on his knees, and lowers his head into his hands till his face is covered, brown hair spiking up between his fingers. A friend punches him in the shoulder, says, come on, it's a joke, right? But he doesn't answer, just sits there and starts to shake. He's covering something very terrible with his hands. The friend backs away and shouts, stop that, you're making it true. The radio is calmer now. The crowds are starting to disperse. Police are in pursuit of the suspected slayer. What am I still talking for? You got him. You succeeded in preventing the changes he might have brought to this violent country. Goodbye. You don't need me to tell you what you did. Silence. The beginning of Brahms' first symphony. The drum banging again, again, again. Someone kill it. Shoot the radio. God damn, you shot everything else. Can't wait. Have to go home. All the guys from the line are stampeding over the muddy field toward their cars. I don't have a car. I'm weird. I stumble and lurch among clumps of high grass going across the field toward the room with the TV screen. screen. The blurred images, the confused shouts of commentators. By the time I reach home, the monitors will be set up in the hospital room, the nuns weeping in the hallway, the spectators who witnessed the shooting. 
all trying to escape the Metroplex, all doing 80 down, down I-67, getting as far from the flying skull fragment as possible, eyes glazed. The other motorists all at risk from their crazy driving, the ones that didn't see, everyone at risk now, everyone just a, just a bag of blood driving down the highway. 1964, the man sitting next to me on the bus as it pulls out of Dallas points to my window where streetlights float through the oily darkness beyond the reflections of baggage. That there's the Texas school book depository, he says. Think the country will ever forgive us? Smiling, expecting a yes. I close the image paperback encyclicals of Pope Leo XIII. We're them, and they're us, I say. Forgiveness is as close as your dreams. So fuck yourself. The dream. I dream that I'm walking to Dallas, but darkness has fallen, and I won't be in time for the motorcade, the seeing, the waving. The lights, one by one, go out far across the dark. I'm on a sidewalk that feeds into more sidewalks. My feet kick forward, my mouth gulps night air. I get town, downtown about 1 a.m., past the public library. Then I pass smashed open shop fronts, empty shells of darkness where glass crunches because someone is inside, walking across wall mirrors, walking, walking, walking out of one wall and into another, store after store. My dream starts to cut out on me while I'm searching side streets for an exit, kicking in wasp rage as a terrible light starts to dissolve the city. And here we have Michael Goldner. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. Um, I want to start by just uh, by thanking Elizabeth and the staff of Meet for Tea um, personally, but also on behalf of the two authors that I've been translating for publishing their work in English for the first time. Uh, well, these particular pieces in English are the, for the first time. Uh, so I'm a Danish literary translator. I live in Florence. Um, I've had a lot, of, uh, a lot of work published in the last couple of years. I'm really happy to be in this issue of Meet for Tea. I want to introduce you to two very, very special Danish authors. Um, the first is Knud Sørensen. I'll show you his picture. Um, this is Knud Sørensen. He's 86 years old. He's written 48 books. He's never been translated outside of, the, uh, outside of Denmark except for a couple poems in Russian uh, after Chernobyl 30 years ago. He's a... Um, uh, he was a uh, land surveyor for half a century after World War II. And living in rural Denmark, he documented in his poetry um, the lives of the farmers, the proud lives that they had living on their uh, land for hundreds of, for generations, sometimes hundreds of years. And, but in the 70s and 80s, what happened here with the collapse of the family farms and farming communities also happened in Denmark and people had to leave their farms, and those tragedies are also in his poetry. I think it's a quite a wonderful contribution to, to world literature. And I have two poems of his that are in this issue, and I'll read those in Danish, 
and in English for you. So you can see it. This poetry has also been, has also been recorded. I've, had, I've produced um, recordings of these uh, in English. So if you're interested in getting your poetry that way uh, by listening to it, you can see me afterwards. The first poem is quite timely. It's called The Summer, which is only a couple weeks away. In Danish, this is uh, someone. Someone's landscape skal være befolket af kører, af vrelten af fodgængere, fire benede under, bevæget af umættelighed og en aldrig slumrende nysgerrighed. Someone's dage skal være fyldt af produktiv ladhed, af tungt skvulpende instinkter. Someone's lyd skal være de dumpe fald af drøvtykket natur, og someone's glæde de brede, kødfulde røkke, som ens hånd kan lide at give en anden som et klap en stille aften, mens dukken begynder at falde. The summer. The landscape of summer shall be populated with cows. Waddling pedestrians, four-legged marvels motivated by insatiability and an ever-wakeful curiosity. Summer days shall be filled with productive laziness, with instinctive heavy cud-chewing. Summer sounds shall be the dull thuds of ruminated nature, and summer's joy, the broad, meaty backs that one's hand likes to give gentle pats one quiet evening while the dew starts to settle. One more poem by Knut Sørensen. Drømmen, the dream. Drømmen. Jeg vil have, at det skal være enkelt og let at forstå. Man begynder med at bearbejde sin jord, og bagefter sår man. Så skinner solen, og det regner, og solen skinner igen. Og en dag er de grønne spire kommet frem. Så siger man, at spirene vokser til planter, og at planterne vokser og blomstrer og sætter frø. Og solen skinner, og fryene modnes, og det er tid at høste. Så høster man. Så tærsker man, og nogle af frøerne gemmer man, for at så dem næste forår. Og nogle af frøerne gemmer man, for at bruge dem i vinterens løb. Og resten af frøerne sælger man. Om vinteren passer man sine dyr. Sådan laver man, til man dør. Alt andet er kun krusninger på overfladen. Mejeri sammenslutninger, fabrikker, revolutioner, forretningsprocenter, kødkvæg, kontramælkekvæg, alt det er uvirkeligt. Det virkelig er jord, sol, regn og luften, som er varmere om sommeren end om vinteren. Så enkelt. The dream. I want to make it simple and easy to understand. 
You start by preparing your land, and afterwards you sow. Then the sun shines, and it rains, and the sun shines again, and one day the green shoots come up. So you watch the shoots grow into plants, and the plants grow and flower and set seed, and the sun shines and the seed matures, and it's time to harvest. So you harvest, so you thresh, and some of the seed you save for sowing next spring, and some of the seed you save to use during the winter, and the rest of the seed you sell. Over the winter, you take care of your livestock. In this way, you live until you die. Everything else is just ripples on the surface. Dairy consolidations, factories, revolutions, sales percentages, meat cattle versus dairy cows. All that is unreal. What is real is earth, sun, rain, and the air that is warmer in the summer than in the winter. So simple. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to introduce you to one more Danish poet um, who only wrote about five books. Uh, I was in a Danish used bookstore and I picked up an anthology of like 50 poets and there were three poems by this poet in there that I loved more than any other and, and I, I translated them right away. I found an address for her and sent a letter off with my translation saying, can I have permission to translate your poetry? And um, so anyway, I met with her husband in the fall. She died last February. What I didn't know was that when they received my letter, she was in the hospital. And, um, and he, he got the letter and brought it to her at the hospital and read it to her. And it turned out, she, I didn't know this, but she was a teacher of Danish and English. So she understood my translations quite well. He asked her if she would give me permission to, do, to, you know, to translate the work, and, and she did. And um, uh, when I met with him, what I didn't know was that the last, that was the last conversation they had, that uh, she, was, she was on her deathbed, and, and those, were her la- those were basically her last words. Um, so uh, uh, since then, I've had, I guess, about a dozen of her poems published in English. I'm hoping they'll be able to get a, a full volume published one of these days. And, um, that's uh, Mayena Kaluta Henson. I know I had another one of these, but I don't know where it is right now. And, also, um, and I've also, uh, her, her work's also been recorded. Um, so if you like it, um, see me after this and you could uh, take one home. This poem is, uh, one of the things I love about this poem is uh, it's about how as people, we, you know, we always look forward to things but the things that are really important we also are afraid of at the same time. <clears throat> this is called Surainone, the Lilacs. Surainone. Je vil ikke noget værre end når surainone blomstrer. Hele året går jeg og glæder mig, og hvis det ikke var for tanken om, hvor smuk verden kan være, når surainone står i flor, kom jeg aldrig igennem vinterens triste, mørke og kulde. Jeg elsker sirener. De står for mig som noget af det smukkeste i verden. 
Men så snart de begynder at springe ud, bliver jeg pludselig bange. Nu kommer den tid, jeg har glædet mig til i så mange måneder. Og hvordan skal jeg nyde det? Kan jeg måske få tilskrækkeligt ud af den skønne, men alt for korte tid, hvor sirenerne blomstrer? Jeg føler aldrig, at jeg er parat. Gid, de ville give mig en uge til. Men naturen må følge sin lov. Og knopperne springer som popcorn, enten jeg er parat eller ej. Så længe sirenerne blomstrer, pjekker jeg fra mit job, siger nej til alle invitationer, barrikaderer mig i mit hjem med masser af rødvin og dosemad og mørklægningsgardiner, går ikke frivilligt uden for en dør, med mindre det er tvingende nødvendigt. Og det er helst kun efter mørkets frembrud med bøjet hoved og solskærm og skyklapper, mørke briller og brødskygget hat, for ikke at blive konfronteret med syrenernes skamlyse, skilden sig selv, stilden sig selv til skue. For at undgå at indånde duften, holder jeg været, og trækker det kun, når jeg ved, at ingen far er, for eksempel ved skraldespænde, sure kloakker og frisklagte hundelorte. Når jeg omsteder har på fornemmelsen, at det er ved at være overstået, begynder jeg forsigtigt at skæve op til, hvor jeg ved, syrenerne hænger, og mit hold hopper af glæde, mit hjerte hopper af glæde, når de er færdige, udbrændte, brune og slappe. Nu kan jeg trække vejret igen. Og løfte og rette ryggen, løfte blikket, melde mig rask på jobbet, rulle mine mørke gardiner op og begynde at se lidt til folk igen. Men til næste år vil jeg nøde sirenerne. Kommer dem i møde og vær beredt, så de ikke tager mig på sengen igen. De skal ikke have lov til at trænisere mig. Jeg elsker sirener. De står for mig som noget af det smukkeste i verden. Og jeg begynder allerede at glæde mig til næste gang, de blomstrer. The Lilacs. I know of nothing worse than when the lilacs are blooming. All year I look forward to it. And if it weren't for the thought of how beautiful the world can be when the lilacs are in flower, I would not make it through the winter's sad darkness and cold. I love lilacs. To me, they are some of the most beautiful things in the world. But as soon as they start to bloom, suddenly I feel afraid. Now the time is coming that I've been looking forward to for so many months. And how am I going to enjoy it? Will I be able to get enough out of that beautiful but all too short period when the lilacs are in bloom? I never feel I am ready. If only they would give me another week. But nature must follow its laws and the buds open like popcorn whether I'm ready or not. As long as the lilacs are in bloom, I play hooky from work decline all invitations, barricade myself inside my home with lots of red wine and canned good, goods and blackout curtains. I don't willingly go outside unless it is absolutely unavoidable. And then preferably only after darkness sets with bowed head and visor and blinders, dark glasses and wide-brimmed hat in order not to be confronted with the lilacs shameless putting themselves on display. To avoid inhaling the scent, I hold my breath 
and breathe only when I know there is no danger, for example, by trash cans, stinking sewers, and fresh dog poop. When I eventually get the feeling that it's about over, I begin carefully to leer towards where the lilacs are hanging, and my heart leaps with joy when they are finished, burnt out, brown, and limp. Now I can breathe again, stand up straight and lift my gaze, report healthy to work, open my dark curtains, and start getting together with people again. But next year, I will enjoy the lilacs, come out to meet them and be prepared so they don't take me by surprise again. I'm not going to let them terrorize me. I love lilacs. To me, they are some of the most beautiful things in the world. And I'm already beginning to look forward to the next time they bloom. Thank you so much. Jonathan Cause Elwit. So I'm going to read two very short excerpts from my comic novelette, Talk Nonsense to Me, which is in the new issue of Meat for Tea. Thank you, Elizabeth. And all you need to know about this, to listen to my excerpts, is that the protagonist, who is Tom, is an American comedy writer who has come to London in 1963, and he's working on a variety show for television. And his writing partner is named Judith, and she's the senior partner, so she's somewhat of a mentor to him. And then we also have Alec Barnes, who is a star of this variety show. And first I'm going to read a couple of expository passages that I've kind of mushed together for the purposes of this excerpting. And these are the, uh, the reflections of our protagonist. Evenings had come to pose a bit of a problem. How to occupy myself without spending a fortune on nightlife or imposing on my new colleagues? With nearly every lunch occurring in their favorite pub, I had no desire to return alone to that pub or any other pub later in the day. Besides, the licensing hours perplexed me, by which I mean I hadn't bothered to learn what they were. Looking back on how I'd spent my free time in Hollywood, I vowed never again to underestimate the social nourishment provided by large numbers of acquaintances I didn't much like. People one doesn't much like have a lot to offer, I now realized. They take up space and fill a room with noise. Perhaps in renting a solitary flat here, I had foolishly missed my chance to be like the bemused protagonist in one of those boarding or rooming house comedies with annoying but diverting eccentrics at my every elbow. The daytimes were grand. My writing was being both appreciated and, thanks to Judith, improved. It ran no risk, naturally, of being appreciated by Alec Barnes, who appreciated nothing. But the very unattainability, or rather non-existence, of his approval was in itself a kind of carte blanche. And though I wasn't necessarily fond of every single individual I was sharing my lunch times with, as a group, I loved them. 
I was necessarily fond of Judith. Apart from the fact that she was just attractive enough to me and just inaccessible enough, that is completely, to give me a safe little crush to harbor in my bosom, her wisdom, cheerful spirits, and repartee filled the workdays with sparkle and enrichment. I looked forward to getting past the crush stage soon and adoring her like a sister forevermore. A slightly older sister who would always be a branch or two ahead of me as we scrambled up after laughter and success. And now here's a little scene between Tom and Alec Barnes. When I arrived at our building, I was quite surprised to find Alec Barnes himself sitting behind the desk in the outer office, that desk where the receptionist on our floor would have worked had there been one. He was, improbably, arranging a small quantity of mar marbles on the blotter, insofar as one can be said to arrange things that instantly roll away. Mr. Barnes? Despite all I'd heard about his exasperating behavior, I was always awed and not a little disoriented to find myself alone with a bona fide star, even when some of the star's credentials were more strictly bona than fide. I'm Tom Feinblum. You don't know me, but I'm one of the writers working on your special. Is there something I can help you with? I'm very sorry you had to wait. Judith and I stepped out to lunch. That's Judy Towns, you know, and she won't be back for a few. Alex silenced me merely by standing up. Though he was not, in fact, much above average in height, the way he carried himself made him appear strikingly tall, at once imperiously and comically so. Never before had I been so silently silenced, without even a gesture or a dirty look. You won't believe it, but I came to see you, Tom. And naturally you're forgiven for making me wait, my boy. Barnes could not have been more than five years my senior. They told me there was a new arrival on the staff, an American. And you see, I make it a practice to befriend the least important person in any project I undertake. Call me quaint, but no matter how grand and glorious my status, I always feel a childlike need to have an ally, an ally too insignificant in the scheme of things to feel anything but the purest gratitude towards me. <laughs> Had I been inclined to speak freely, quaint would not have been the first thing I'd have called Mr. Barnes at that juncture. However, I limited my reply to thanking him for his calculating and insulting show of camaraderie, not in so many words, of course. And as I've befriended you, Tom, I noted how his dedicated overuse of the verb form had the effect of making it sound quite aptly like an act of effrontery. There's something I'd like you to do for me. Oh, what's that? He reached into his jacket pocket. I have a sketch here that I've written myself, but I'd like you to present it as your work and insert it in the show. If it's well received, I'll step in to take due credit, of course. If not, well, only your own reputation will suffer, so no harm done. I took a deep breath. I'm sorry, Mr. Barnes, but I can't do that. He seemed more amused than displeased. Of course you can. Here, have a peek at it, and you'll see what a favor I'm doing you by letting you enjoy the temporary illusion that you've authored it. 
He unfolded the typewritten pages and forced them into my hands. No one else has laid eyes on it yet, he intoned theatrically. I glanced involuntarily at the top sheet. No one except Victor Borga, I said after a beat, and anyone who saw him do this routine on television 10 years ago. I have no idea who you could mean, said Barnes without blinking. I'm sorry, Mr. Barnes. By fainting with a proffered handshake, I finally managed to return the script to his care, this being my third attempt. The look he gave me was either pitying or piteous, Alec himself, I suspected, having not decided which. Oh, Tom, Tom. He settled on piteous. Must a great actor weep to be heard? Must a legendary talent sob to get your attention? You have my attention, sir. You just don't have my cooperation. His eyebrows fired up. I distrust you now, Tom Finebloom. Barnes spun around and vanished into the stairwell, taking with him the privilege of his befriendment and leaving behind eight or nine rambling marbles, inebriated deputies in possession of an otherwise empty desk. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. Leah Banks. I'm going to read um, three or four poems. Three that are... Um, part of a... Uh, uh, a manuscript I have. Uh, I'm really tired of this little girl. So, um, excuse her. The Cigarette Girl. On heavy metal tracks, the train's thunder rumbles our fly-blown trailer every strangled bit of morning. Mama's alarm. Slam of the sleep button again, again. Rainy night in Georgia, in my head on loop. I whisper secret noises to the silent air. Soon I need to wake her. Give me this share of myself a bit longer before she stumbles out of bed with a bellow. I've made her lunch in a paper bag. I hand out intractable Paul Malls. The cigarette girl with fishnet tights in the aisle, I wait patiently as she hustles around. Pop open a can of cat food, smear it in his dish. Here, stupid cat. Day after staggering day. Mama's face, worn out, bloodshot, speeding to school in our Shameful stick car. Slayers on mascara as we round the corner, her mouth an O oh, in the weary view mirror. Doesn't even look as she applies it. I dig through her purse, find coral lipstick. I look at her through crooked bangs. At this moment, she glimmers ravaged beauty to honey. 
light me a cigarette doll baby and smiles her slanted smile. She's the fairy queen, the good mommy. Stinking of smoke on my 10-year-old self. I don't care if I'm late again. As we pull into school, she's blotting her coral lips with an unopened bill. This next poem is called Hallelujah, and I open it with a... um, uh, a quote by uh, John Berryman. My air is flung with souls which will not stop. And among them hangs a soul that has not died and refuses to come home. Give her a jar of bourbon and she'll hit the town winking, squinting and sipping hallelujah from a paper cup. She's staggering under the righteous reverence of the eyelash sales clerk at the Winn-Dixie. Swaggering and impatient, hapless, fluky firefly. From the tree at the side of the road, a love roach sweeps into her sugary hair. She doesn't notice at all. Bright, tight, red lips. A little aimless always fearless, desire, scorpions in. He spies this crooked girl swinging her hips down the whole holy highway, stalking, pulling slowly up beside her, offering a drink if she'll just come home with him. Flipping her cigarette on gravelly ground, she thinks woman lost time about the boy who smeared her makeup, left her without shoes, without sense enough in her stockyard life not to climb in this man's car. He chainsaws over the border, pushes her down to his lap, tells her to whisper that she is his Madonna, whore of his God-given life. She sings it greedily. The moon rises above the shadowy thorns, carnival, bright and spinning, floating like a drowned girl, treeless, a worn-up god, unjarred. I know. Another bummer by Banks. <laughs> this isn't a bummer, if I can find it. <laughs> it's, a, it's an obad, um, which um, you'll figure out, if you don't know what an obad is, uh, by the end of it you'll know. Your mouth a grand entrance, your cordial curls longer, golder than mine, splashing you with a shine of warm brandy, honey in the back of our throat, one throat, one gold above me, an oriole, worn like a victor over flesh. Thermal your body in front, in back, a fur coat, holding an enormously satisfied woman.
every sound, light passing through a teal evening gown draped in peerless pearls. Your kisses float down to my hips, unfolding tiny bird cherries, chirping mouth to mouth. The softest secret of love speaks through pores in our skin from dancing in a too tight room. Reflection, the night, drawing my eyes down. Your firm hands hard. I'm singing arias in the back of my throat. I cannot will myself out of our mouths. My eyes well up with your ambition, skimming my skin. When you leave your goodbye, my silver hand mirror drinks to no end for your absence. This uh, next poem is, and last poem, is the, um, uh, the wonderful um, Elizabeth Montgomery. And, and what, 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 what is it called? Meat for tea. <laughs> um, um, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be part of it. Uh, this is what she um, picked. It's called Easter. I can't read this without a southern accent. I can't do it. So, Daddy's dark face sucks on a cigarette, peers in Woolworth's window, tetchy and restless. Little faces, flushed cheeks, teeth missing, pricker scabs. Gaze over the counter at the bird shit and wood chips. The musty store sells baby chicks dyed pastel bright. I want pink and sister cries for blue. The chicks lunge against the box, feathers flying, walking up the driveway hand in hand. We're naming them. Mama sucking on Ryan Ginger, talking on the phone, mouths, no. No baby bird shit all over her floor. Their home, a forlorn baby pool in the carport. Next morning, I whisper that it's time for us to go, that Jesus wants us to go. Daddy turns over and says, sweet pea, draw the blinds on your way out. My mama, her sleep, her sleep mask on, her hair spread lovely. We go to the Baptist church with a family across the street, squeeze in the back with their kids. One is constantly sick and wipes his nose on his shirt sleeve. One pinches your arm until it bruises. One is deranged and mute. This car ride has gone on this way for an eternity. I kick my sister, for she is doing nothing that the Lord likes. She has fallen asleep. She is eating candy. She is squirming because she has to pee. She is looking at her Bible upside down. I sit in the pew. <laughs> Think of Daddy coming home from work. A piglet rolled off a farm truck in front of him. He picks up the poor thing, threw it in a laundry basket in the back seat. Elmer the pig surprised my mama with shit and a squeal on her kitchen floor. His home, 
a paint-chipped crib in the deserted lanai. He died the next day. I think of all the animals that I had all my short life, quiz myself with their names. Teddy, Pronto, Ginger, Lady. I sit there with a good hum of the preacher man. I think of that cartoon with Henny Penny, Chicken Little and Chicken Lickin'. I kick the bench with remembrance. I forgot. I forgot to water and feed the chicks for two whole days. Milky, white gloves, tumble out the church door, white hat flying. Dirty white gloves after a slap hard on the sidewalk. Block after city block, I run like a crazy girl to pastel bright, sickly chicks. They don't take the water, I splash and pour for them. One is crumpled on the feed bowl. I scurry in the house and bring toast and apple juice. That's what mama gives us when they're peaked. I yell, live, crazy chicks, live. I find a dirty sheet and cover them, thinking it will warm them, keep them alive. I lay on the cement in the carport, cradling the pool with my body. I think this will warm them, too. The lady next door wakes me up. Where's your mama? And your papa? Thank you. Thank you, guys. Up next and last, Connolly Ryan. It's like the universe wants you to. My harmony is a nocturnal entity. I feed it liquefied kale and crystallized nurture. Tarot cards and carrot cakes are my spirit items. I take them with me everywhere I grow. There was this yoga instructor once. He was like, you are my only safe place left in the universe. But he wasn't gluten-free, so I questioned his chakra, and he choked on his chard. The other day, I missed the bus, and it began to rain. And the closest shelter was the Chocolate Emporium. So I slipped inside, and there were free samples of chocolate-covered bacon. It was exactly like the universe wanted me to experience this particular kind of decadence. Another time, there was this bike cop bleeding to death between the parked cars. And one of the cars was electric. And I completely acknowledged then and there that the universe wanted me to save up and buy an electric car. And then I remembered my divorced parents and how each one competed for my loyalty and affection by buying me stuff. So I called both of them back to back and the universe actually, no, literally aligned for that single series of moments. And both of them agreed to pay half each. My mom actually is paying a bit more than half so that she wins the competition. But shh, it's all part of the universe's plan. My disharmony, or what my new age allergist refers to as my allergies to everything my inner angel disagrees with, on the other hand, is more of a diurnal or daytime anomaly. 
and includes an aversion to businessmen, aggressive pets, non-licensed street musicians, children on leashes, and pollen. So if it is during the day that I want to explore the universe, I do so in my new electric car. Thanks. Which I first named Kravitz and then changed to Katniss, hashtag Hunger Games. Either way, I had to name it something that began with a K because the universe texted me the other day and made me promise to. Oh wait, that was my best friend Kaya who texted me and told me to name the car Kaya, but I said, no way. And she said, well, at least give it a name that begins with K. So Katniss, formerly Kravitz, it is. See how the universe works? Okay. I really can't see. Okay. Uh, this is called Bleep Psalm. Out here in the backyard, we see all the little heads nodding and waggling, and all the tiny raised voices bleeping the bleep out of each other. Such gorgeous voltage inside this golden montage of Gaia's perky choir, praising the bleep out of just how bleeping good the world can be when we forget the humans in it. The sunset is a sustained opus of peach. The leaves avid lovers of bleeping themselves ragged. And the grass itself is teeming with the kind of bleeping bleeps of which the only prayers God ever bothers to listen to are made. Ah, I love audiences that have the clap. Uh, it's called a lobotomy in a blue velvet tracksuit based on drinking with Dan Mahoney. Brought that for you, Sam. Is it dinner time yet? For God's sakes, is it? He drools into his denim gunny sack, gumped into a bus stop bench. He looks to even the score with God, but how does one reconcile with an imbecile? From his pork-colored trilby to his Loganberry brogans, he is one bad haircut away from inciting a celestial hemorrhage. Children point at his scar and cheer. Ne'er-do-wells orbit around him, collecting confidence. He calls himself Dan, but his birth certificate knows better. His name is Broken Orphan, or Vague Disaster, or something like that. Human wreckage is what he amounts to, the sum of all nasty moments that have ever been. He likes being tickled, but no one ever has. Launched into anonymity the night he was squeezed from his dying mother and onto a halfway home throw rug, raised by raised eyebrows and a secret cluster of priests. His days were numbered before he learned letters. His only crime, of course, was invisibility and the isolation which succeeds it. But if you're looking to pity him, don't bother for he is nobody's brother or son or companion. He is barely even an appendage of life. Like a warped coupon, his death certificate waits in a room for him to expire. It's laughter keeping it company like a bluebird deflating in a bored cat's mouth. Thanks for making me feel special. 
fly awake all night and then call me. Fly like you know the way back to the woods. Fly like the word no, shattering into a whole mess of unassailable yeses. Fly like slavery never opened the, its yawning muzzle and swallowed the whole future of beauty. Fly like a guitar twang in a greenhouse or like a mermaid's murmur through an underwater school bus. Fly like God Almighty shot down and freed by the restless darkness. Fly like a human no longer estranged. Fly like your uncle that day by the ocean. Fly like your father before he was born. Fly like your gratitude is never turned off. Fly like time spent delicately in the garden. Fly without recourse to manufactured distractions. Fly like a boy girl at a girl boy's cotillion. Fly like your name is anybody without a body. Fly like a person tirelessly unhinged. Fly like that feeling between deciding to kill something and then not killing it. Fly as if a cloud of hummingbirds were pulling you inward. Fly like the day you were born was not a linear event, but an intangible awakening ceremony, like the opening chords to Led Zeppelin's Tangerine. Fly into a giant net of pretty intentions and see if you don't see all the sorrow ensnared in it. Fly like a child in love with windows. Don't give that little fucker riddling. Just let him stare out the windows, will you? These kids today, these kids today menstruate prematurely. And that's just the boys. The girls are already selling bits of themselves at derelict bargains, explaining to their parents that irony is not a word. The teachers are hardly any more functional specialists in conventional subver excuse me, specialists in conventional subversions like tattoo poetry and jihad haiku. Ubiquitous medication is all they and the forlorn student body have in common. The parents of these kids today explore loopholes and navigate evasion, whether at home or at work, sipping goblets, tipping bongs, humming entire album sides, and avoiding revision at day's end. These kids today find their parents' severity laughable and their gravity misplaced. Why foster control when your whole existence is a study in lax discipline and failed wisdom? These kids today are those parents tomorrow, addled, polluted, vaguely against this thing or that, casualties of some abstract war, driven by principles and convictions based more or less on the metastasizing suspicion that they were dropped as an infant in more ways than one. All right, we got two more and then we're out of here. Thanks guys. Called His Distance. His distance is a coping mechanism, not a cop-out. To be present is to be pained, or at best, pleasantly distressed. He is aloof as a roof, which is to say he may be above the fray, but never far enough away to completely divorce himself from the drama. For if he were to hang onto every intonation or insinuation of discontent, espoused by those near and dear to him, he would break into pieces, and that would be that. And what good is a broken man to a household and family? 
Better to be distant, still in the room, but lost in rumination, managing his rage in measurable segments, as his wife and kids occupy themselves with different matters, matters no less important than his constellation of ethereal distractions, but certainly no more important either. A coping mechanism, not a cop-out, he testifies aloud, unaware that his wife and children moved out weeks ago. Uh, last poem, uh, uh, Some of Her. This first line was a meditation on the whole um, Bruce Jenner, Catherine Jenner thing, but then it just turns into something else. In her bed of echoes, she hears a man inside her. That she is alone in bed is what makes this notable. Her eyes have seen the going of the Lord, which is to say she is an atheist. Some of her best friends are snapping turtles and other monsters she meets on the more secluded bits of the bike path. Everyone loves what she's done with her hair, which is nothing. Her mind is always a few blocks away from the scene of an innocuous crime, like a farm girl shoplifting or a policeman bleeding to death. Weary of clothes and weary of droves, she spends a good portion of her afternoons two-thirds naked on a little-known lawn. Like a character in a famously ignored novel, she moves through her life like a metaphor through a sea of similes, or like a simile within a simile, collapsing and blooming in revolving intervals, so that some of her goes away and the rest of her opens up. Thank you, guys. Now, please enjoy some music from Mystics Anonymous. Well, the Northampton Association of Slumlords was meeting on a Tuesday afternoon. And Mr. Hoyt's got up to make a speech in which his metaphor was based on a broom. And all the children cried in anguish, and all the women laughed in pain. And we were reconciled on the other side of litigation. And when we feel good, we take a trip up to Mary's and we sit around with whiskey and gin. He fixes supper with carrots and taters And we play risk until somebody wins And when we come home in the evening With the violence on TV We have a nightcap and we praise our lovely little nation Is it all we can do to keep ourselves in check? With all the indie rock snobs breathing down our neck Everybody's got something to prove Everybody's 
it's gonna be free after all Her mind is racing while her body is having a ball Squeezes her eyes shut and thinks of a time When nothing could keep her from finding a rhyme Walking along, now she looks underneath the bushes and the trees Nothing exclusive, she knows how to read and she knows what she sees Remember the boy who broke her heart and then asked to be friends She'd like to oblige him, but she knows just how this story This is how 
Sometimes what you hunger for is not what you need I've been staring at the turn signal in the tree
Presley, music from Claudia Malibu.
having it tonight. Tonight. That ends that way tonight. note to end on. Thank you very much. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Sewn Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meetforteacast at gmail.com. 
where you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meet for TCast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meet for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meet for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meet for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meet for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth, Meet for Tea on Instagram and on the Meet for Tea and Meet for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meet for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.